Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you would like to send us your questions, feel free to do so by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to know proper spelling of that, you can join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our page where we are streaming not only live every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, but also give you the chance to listen to previous broadcasts through that venue as well. On the right-hand side of the screen, if you'd like to send us the questions live, we'll be able to see them as the broadcast unfolds. But if you're unable to join us live, note you can still take advantage of that email, which will be spelled out at the bottom of the screen. If social media is your preferred engagement with us, you can join us on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. But note that since they don't like what we have to say at times and have been taken down um, more often than we actually are all too eager to warn you and to admit, we want to inform you that if you don't see us on those channels, they can't ban us on our own website. We want to make sure that page is where you are most comfortable and most frequent, or at least most readily available to join us consistently during the broadcast. Note that the questions that we will be receiving are sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible, meaning the substance of the question, is the Bible, not just that it's mentioned in the question, but that the answer will also include that as well, and of course that it is asked in the form of a question. And as we're waiting for questions to come in, we will encourage you to do so, but in the meantime we have a topic that we'll be starting with, or I guess continuing with, regarding Sola Scriptura that Peter and I have been discussing the last couple weeks. But before we, of course, get into the Latin and so forth, we want to make sure that God speaks more than we do. So why don't we take a moment to pray and see where the Lord takes it. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of not only being a recipient, but a conduit of your Spirit. Allow him to minister to your people as you see fit, whether words are spoken in truth, with edification, exhortation, and comfort, or ultimately just to bear witness to your name. We thank you for our opportunity to be a part of all of it. Allow your name to be properly honored through your word here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, sola scriptura, obviously Latin for scripture alone, and it was one of the war cries, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation. But we need to be careful in clarifying to our audience, and even to opponents of this view, that it wasn't a new idea, it wasn't a Protestant idea, it is in fact a biblical idea, that the Scripture itself, the foundation and definition of our faith, does in fact put itself forward as sufficient to equip us for, and I'm kind of giving you a layup here, but uh, every good work, the knowledge of God, our relationship with Him, and so forth. Now, certain organizations have tried to fill in the gap, not to necessarily usurp Scripture, not going full-on cult, 
but to go out of their way to say, well, since we can't always interpret Scripture properly, we need authorities on top of, or they'll say alongside of it, that bear the same authority because they come from the same source. We'll be going more into that in a minute, but this is just a summary statement of what we're going to talk about for the next 10 to 15 minutes. When we're discussing Sola Scriptura, of course, we need to start with what Scripture actually says about itself. We've gone into the history, we've gone into the intent and meaning behind that that term, but where is it actually in the text? Let's follow our own rules. Does sola scriptura follow scriptura? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, it does. And uh, so last week, if you weren't with us, we did talk about why we believe that scripture is infallible and is God-breathed, right? Something that God has given to mankind to help us understand how to have a relationship with him. Now, the question that arises now, and this would be all from the very cult-like organization like the Bible Watchtower and Tract Society, all to our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, which would be, well, yes, Bible. the Bible is inspired by God. It is God's revelation of himself. It's not been corrupted. It is, it is authoritative. However, as you said, Sean, our organization is also infallibly inspired, right? And therefore, we have the ability and the right to rightfully interpret Scripture and tell you what it means. So, As Protestants, as people who don't believe that way, what we think is that, no, God has not infallibly empowered the Church to do that. The Scripture is the only infallible rule of faith. So this is where we get that, and it is from Scripture. So this is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. There we have that idea of it's inspired by God and therefore infallible and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work of God. So that idea there is, once again, we're not saying that only Scripture contains infallible truth, right? There are math textbooks that contain infallible truth, history textbooks that contain infallible truth, but we're saying that only Scripture is a God-breathed, a revelation of God of how to have a relationship with Him. It's the only infallible source we have as mankind in order to relate to God. So notice how Paul ends it by saying that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If there is a good work that exists outside of Scripture, and we're not prepared for it simply and only by Scripture, then Paul lied, right? Scripture alone should contain everything we need in order to have a right relationship with God. So any organization that claims that they have some sort of a interpretation or some sort of an extra revelation that Scripture needs in order to help it encourage us to a right relationship with God is lying to you. So that's one example from the Scripture, but are there others? Well, um, I guess if we're going to mention the Roman Catholic authority, we can go to the Apostle Peter himself, the Bishop of Rome, as he's advertised, despite not really having been there. He makes careful to emphasize that his authority wasn't just from his experiences, although he goes on to mention the transfiguration and the resurrection as foundational to his claims about the Messiah. But he goes on in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 to say, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Notice how he's advertising this as not only a confirmation of prophecy, but our guide through not only dark places, but noting an anticipation of until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. If you would like follow-up questions as to what he's referring to, feel free to ask. I'll give you the short answer. It's noting the 
full culmination of Jesus Christ. And you can read this in Revelation 22, the bright and morning star. He refers to that as himself, that is Old Testament significance, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, so notice the prophetic word, which word is he referring to? Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's your interpretation, that's his interpretation, you all have your interpretation. No, there is a wrong answer. Right. <laughs> and then he says this, not only in confirmation, but verification of its purpose, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Notice, never came by the will of man. This, these weren't our ideas. But men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There's a mind behind this Right. Not madness, but sanity, if you will. Which means that there's an intent, and as you said, a right and wrong way to interpret. And obviously people get a little nervous about that. They don't want to adopt and base their life around false things about God, but as the admittedly non-Christian man Mark Twain once observed, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that's disturbed me, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that disturb me. Our issue isn't often our willingness to make sure all of Scripture is properly understood, but that we're actually sticking to what we've got. Right. It's not hard through the Holy Spirit, to grasp the significance and point of John 3.16. It's not hard to grasp the significance and application of Romans 5, 6 through 8. The essence of the gospel is a foundational for every Christian to understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. These aren't the things where you have to get insights into the Greek to fully <laughs> understand down to their core. Yeah. But people will still want to make sure, sure that their sources of spiritual authority have uh, credentials, right. if you will. And this is where we ultimately need to ask the question, is this just a New Testament idea? Is this something that was introduced by the apostles? Are we giving skeptics uh, ammo in this case? Well, remember, Jesus himself said not just that Scripture was sufficient, but that it was the witness of himself. In Matthew, or John chapter 5 and verse 39, in a, a confrontation we'll go more into in a minute, he made this point in conclusion in saying, you search the Scripture scriptures. What was he referring to? The Old Testament, the 39 books, the Nevavim, the Kethuvim, and the Torah, that the Jews he was speaking to recognized as from God, not Protestants, not those uh, bigoted uh, fundamentalists. He was speaking to Jews and saying, for in them you think you have eternal life. Notice this isn't a dismissal. They're correct in this, but what is the life? These are they. What are these? The scriptures which testify of me. The foundation, the fundamental nature, and we talked about this last Wednesday in our study through Revelation, Revelation 19 and verse 10, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, people speaking on behalf of God. So when we put scripture on this pedestal. It's not as if we crafted it and built this rule around it and saying that this is sufficient for our understanding of God. This goes back even to the Old Testament. In Psalm 138 and verse 2, David speaking said, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your holy name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Hmm. Now, names, 
have significance in Hebrew culture. When they're making that point of emphasis, you're understanding the fullness of someone's character, everything they would put forward as worth trusting, worth knowing, and worth understanding about themselves. That when Moses asked God's name in Exodus 3, that wasn't just so that he didn't have to call God a bush. It was so that he understood the authority behind him. How does Israel know you? Why should they trust you? And the name, of course, I Am, is not only established with Israel forever, but understand how does Israel know this name? They understood it through their scriptures. Jesus affirmed the scriptures. Right. Jesus's followers affirmed the scriptures. I want to talk about Jesus for a second on that. So, so continue um, In the Old Testament, you have the, as you said, the Torah, the given law, but there was an ideology within the Jews of Jesus' time that there was also an oral tradition passed on to Moses called the Mishnah. Yeah. Now, Again, this is very similar to what we see in, again, our Roman Catholic and our Eastern Orthodox friends, where they're like, yes, the Bible is infallible and everything like that, but there are also these traditions, these oral traditions that the apostles never wrote down, but they transmitted through tradition throughout the church age, and we have them, right? We have these infallible traditions, and you need to come to our church to learn them. Uh, So when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who thought this way, he says, you are taking the words of man, and you're magnifying them above the word of God. So when he was looking at the Mishnah, which again came about for a very obvious reason, people were trying to interpret the Old Testament, they were trying to understand a correct way of looking at it, and therefore there was a lot of debate, and there was a lot of rabbinic writings upon it. What they did is they took those rabbinic writings, and they elevated them to the level of Scripture. And this is what, again, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox have done. They're taking these writings that the early church did, whether they're ecumenical councils, which we'll talk about in a second, or the writings of the early church fathers, just the various books and letters that the early members of the church, the other leaders of the church, compose, and they're saying, these are how we interpret Scripture. This is how we understand what Scripture means, and these give us apostolic tradition that the Scripture doesn't contain, right? Without these traditions, you can't properly worship and acknowledge God. So uh, an argument that a lot of Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox would give to this idea of sola scriptura and everything we've been saying is, well, that's just your tradition that's reading these passages in that way. You see, the early church never read those passages this way. The early church actually thought and knew that the apostolic tradition existed and that it was just as important as what we have contained for us in the Scripture. That would be a contention that they would have. Well, the problem is, is that we don't see that in the early church writings. So when you go into the early church fathers, right, again, these are the early leaders of the church, right, people who are members of the church, leaders of the church, writing things down. In the first two centuries, you don't have any instances in which anyone refers to this apostolic tradition. The first time we have anyone mention it is a guy named Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus of Alexandria, really smart guy, Against Heresies is actually a very good book. Uh, If you ever want to read it, if you like or enjoy (laughs) this kind of thing, you can. It will also help you understand the Gnostics a lot better, because he gives a very, very good explanation of what they actually thought and believed. The first cult. Right, the first cult. So when second, I guess, if you count Galatia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when you're reading in the New Testament and you see the Apostle Paul talking about things of the flesh and the spirit, or the resurrection in First and Second John, and you're wondering, who the heck are they talking to? They were talking to 
to the Gnostics. And so it is good to actually read this book and figure out what the Gnostics actually believed, and it gives you a very good understanding, because we don't really have many of their writings nowadays. We have the <laughs> argumentations against their writings. So uh, Irenaeus... hilarious. Yeah, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> so anyway, Irenaeus is giving this really important exhortation about why Gnosticism is wrong, and he's going through the Bible, and then he kind of slips into a weird place. He starts arguing that Jesus was 50 when he died. So you're like, well, Irenaeus, where the heck did you get? Is it is it heretical to believe that Jesus was 50 when he was died when he died? No. Are you going to go to hell if you believe that? No. But you are wrong. You have to know that you are just wrong. So how did he get this idea? Well, this is Irenaeus again in against heresies. He says, now that the first stage of early life embraces 30 years, and that this extends onwards to 40th year, everyone will admit. But from the 40th and the 50th year, a man begins to decline towards old age, which our Lord possessed while he still fulfilled the office of a teacher. He was 50 when he was still a teacher. That's what he just said. Okay, so... Even as the gospel... Now, notice what he says. Even as the gospel and all the elders testify, those who are conversant in Asia with John the disciple of the Lord, affirming that John conveyed to them that information. This is the first time we ever hear anyone say, John the apostle or an apostle told me this, right? They said this to these guys, and these guys said it to me. That's the first time you ever hear someone say it. Is the information he's conveying right? No. It's, it's very inaccurate, right? He believed yeah. that Jesus died when he was over the age of 50. He clearly didn't. From this point on, you start seeing people mention this apostolic tradition more and more, but its efficacy is really hit or miss. It's not really until you get into the late first millennia, right? Once you get to like the 800s and 900s that you really start seeing this pick up. So you do see a progression. It's very clear when you're reading these early church father writings that there is a a clear progression going on where the church is assuming more and more authority than God ever intended for it to have. And it's kind of sad when you see it happening, but that's how it happens. It is a progression. It's not something that anyone believed in the first two centuries of Christendom. It's something that developed as the church started to garner more authority for itself, um, which also leads to, again, these ecumenical councils. What are, what are those? Well, an ecumenical council, a gathering of leadership, people that would sit down, uh, were ultimately gathered the probably most prominent of ones. The first one we know is recorded for us in Scripture, the Council of Jerusalem, where they were discussing the Galatian heresy. That was what we alluded to briefly before even the Gnostics, whether you had to become Jewish ceremonially— ask how if you'd like, but that was a question. If you had to believe in the Jewish Messiah, did you also have to become Jewish? That was the concern. They clarified these issues through Scripture, verified it from the eyewitnesses, and also made sure they backed up those conclusions with publicly verifiable miracles, which they saw demonstrated in the lives of the Apostle Peter, uh, Paul, and Barnabas. And James, of course, being the leader of the early church at the time, sorry Catholics, uh, would of course affirm all of this. So when they were examining all these things, what did they do? Well, they went to Scripture and says, I see no reason to withhold salvation from these Gentiles. We're seeing the Spirit do this right now. And wait, doesn't that ring a bell here when we go to the prophets and talks about in his name, the Gentiles will hope? Oh, that's Isaiah. Wow, that's uh, interesting. So note that point. But the probably 
unfortunately, the most familiar council that we hear about is the Council of Nicaea. Now, there were other councils before this. There were councils held about whether someone who renounced their faith under the torture of persecution to renounce their faith uh, could be restored to the Church. That was discussed and came to, I think, a fair conclusion. Others, of course, were also addressing the uh, validity of certain books, uh, for example, the Shepherd of Hermas and others, and they clarified those things as, yes, written by apostles, but they didn't claim they were Scripture, so thus they're not in our Bibles today. Mm. But the biggest one, or at least the most popular one, was the First Council of Nicaea, where, interestingly enough, we have extensive notes in the rudder of ecumenical councils, like the ship part, the rudder, if you guys are boat experts, that you know how to spell it. But the point of emphasis was they explained what it was being held for, Constantine's role in sponsoring it, not participating or leading it, right. and gathering all these Christians for the first time, able to, unif- um, in unison, I guess would be the best way to put that in a sentence, clarify an issue that had also sprung up in the Church, not the cult of Gnosticism or even the Galatian issue, but of Arianism, which is literally what Jehovah's Witnesses affirm today, uh, that Jesus was a created being, that he wasn't God. It had nothing to do with the Bible. And interestingly enough, while it had nothing to do with the Bible as far as the topic, what was discussed during that council, don't take our word for it, check the notes. They just quoted scripture. The early church fathers had a knack for this, and in fact, it serves as one of the prime evidences of scriptural preservation, because when people were asking questions about these sort of issues, they just quoted scripture, and they were about as brief as we can be in writing. It was literally so extensive that from their quotations alone, talking about the first three centuries of Christianity, we can reassess the Bible with the exception of 11 insignificant verses. So they were just quoting stuff. Yeah. That's how they argued. That was the point that they emphasized, and for some reason they thought it was enough. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, real, real quick, a couple, uh, I guess, objections, again, objections to solo scripture, and then why it's important, and we'll kind of wrap it up. So uh, one, one more objection to solo scripture is someone will say, well, it's just your interpretation versus my interpretation. And if we all have these separate interpretations, how do we know which one is right? Um, and isn't that an arrogant belief? Now, again, this helps us understand why the writings of early church fathers and even contemporary Christian leaders today is so important to interpreting Scripture. Yes, as Sean said, the main things of Scripture are very plain. We don't really have large amounts of disagreement within the church about these main things. Who is God? Who is Jesus? How are we saved? But we do have disagreements about secondary issues. Absolutely. It is important to read what other people who have gone before you have interpreted these various texts. It does help you give a little bit of a heading. Why did they think this way? Why were they arguing this way? Sometimes their arguments and their reasoning are very good and sound, and they'll help you out. Sometimes they're terrible, and they will also help you out, just go in the opposite direction, kind of like Irenaeus, right? So, uh, by the way, he gives a scriptural interpretation later that's just god-awful. So, you know, there are... If you want to know some scriptural reasons why I would conclude Jesus was, this is my guess, Mm -hmm. around 36, maybe 38 at the latest, ask, but 
not relevant. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Not relevant. Uh, so at any rate, yeah, it, it is important and viable for us to go through these writings and to figure out why are people interpreting it this way? Why are people interpreting it that way? Kind of like the argumentation about eschatology. You know, it is important to go back and figure out why were people, why are people amillennialists today? Why are people preterists? Why are people uh, premillennial? And if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. You could ask. Yeah. Uh, but it is important to figure out why do these people think this way and try to come to your own conclusions? Because again, God has only given us scripture as an infallible rule. The writings of men on scripture, while valuable, not infallible, right? They can give you a good guide and help, but they can't give you a certainty. That only can happen through trying to understand what scripture's original intent was, which means that God, again, he wants us to be smart. He wants us to use our intellect and our will in order to interpret these things. He doesn't want us to be people, as Paul puts it, like little children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. He wants you settled in what you believe and why you believe it, and that comes not from being just told what someone else thinks about what the Bible teaches, but you yourself reading the Bible and understanding why it teaches what it does and why you believe what you do. Um, Another kind of interesting way to look at it is why are people going to these organizations? What is the draw? And I think the main draw for a lot of people is it does bring you to that level of certainty. You're like, it isn't just me thinking this way. It is this huge tradition, this, uh, as the Catholic Church would put it, thousands of years of tradition of inerrant, unchanging, constant doctrine that is just persistent throughout all of church history. Uh, too bad that's not true, but, you know, it sounds good. You know, it sounds like, oh, yeah, it's not just me thinking this way. It really is. There's all this history supporting my belief system. It gives people a lot of comfort. And, uh, you know, again, I would like to give people that kind of comfort, but I can't, right? I can err when I'm interpreting the, the, the Bible. Sean can err. Everyone inside of the Calvary movement can err, for sure. We try our best to rightly divide the word of truth, but again, we're honoring and reverencing the Bible. And if we err against the Bible, we should be called out for it. We're the problem, not our material. That's right. That's right. So if you guys have any other questions about Sola Scriptura, please let us know. Otherwise, next week we'll probably get into Sola Fide. Yeah, and uh, just as a uh, closing cap point, obviously they're not the modern term cap, but the closing <laughs> cap point. Uh, there's a certain passage as well where even, not just to question us, but even the infallible apostolic authority in the book of Acts chapter 17. Mm -hmm. Do we have an example of people who were commended or condemned for questioning apostolic authority on the basis of an authority apparently over them? Yeah, we do. So in Acts 17, there's a really interesting section where Luke records that the Bereans actually questioned Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, based on his doctrine, utilizing the Scriptures. And far from Paul saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, how dare you, right? Everything I say is on par with the Old Testament. Why would you go there when you have me sitting right in front of you? He says, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. So he actually commends them for it, and he actually says that they were better than some of the churches that just took his word for it. And if you're going to, I guess, if you hear the objection, well, that was Paul, not the original apostles. And Second Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter, believe him, don't you? Uh, he affirmed Paul's writings as yeah. scriptures, and yeah. he also affirmed his apostleship there. So your move. Yeah. But with that said, I think that will put a conclusion to the issue. If you have any other questions about scripture and its authority, it's 
relevancy or its accuracy, feel free to let us know. We have some follow-ups on the age of Jesus, but let's take these questions in chronological order. <laughs> uh, question from Isaiah, starting us off, uh, wants to know, is there a heavenly language which God and his angels speak that we don't know, and could they give us, I wonder who you're referring to as they, uh, as tongues. Uh, this is usually a misunderstanding of the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, specifically the first verse. Let me read it in its full flow, and then I think we'll spot the error. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Ah, so angels have a tongue, right? Is that the topic? No, it's noting a transition, a point of contrast. But have not love. I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I don't know if you've ever given a, a hyperactive kid a drum set before, but there's usually one thing that comes as a result of that, and it's meaningless noise. And that's what Paul is describing, that even though I have the ability to communicate in languages beyond or within human understanding, if it's without love, it's meaningless noise. Now note, is the focus and attention of Paul's point that there's this super language out there, and that if we tap into it, then we have this divine connection. We're speaking in super tongues, if you will. Well, remember, Isaiah, when we go to 1 Corinthians 14, which the whole chapter, by the way, is dedicated to the proper use of tongues, the purpose of tongues is always ultimately to be understood. And this is, as a spiritual gift, a ministry to our fellow man. So there would be no purpose for us to be given the tongues of angels in, a con in either context, either assigned to unbelievers or as a ministry in private prayer language to believers. Neither of those things would accomplish what God's Spirit would give the gift of tongues for, which is told to us in chapter 12. Read those two chapters, note the purpose of tongues, and then examine it as far as the relevance of a third of the first verse of 1 Corinthians 13. It's not talking about there being an angelic language. They're spiritual entities. They don't talk. But if, on the other hand, they are going to condescend to us that you don't see them, you know, needing a translator for their proto-Hebrew or whatever. It's right. the fact that they're speaking to man because God introduced languages to us at not just e Eden, but also at Babel. Yeah. So make that point of emphasis. Don't it's, take these things too far. Yeah, it's very hard to have a tongue when you lack a mouth. <laughs> and so or angels, a tongue. Or a tongue, you know, so yeah, angels don't have that. It, and that is an interesting theory of like, how do angels communicate? They obviously have some means, we just don't really understand it very well, but no, they, they wouldn't communicate audibly like we do because we have bodies. And so the only way for us to communicate is to use sound waves and to use our capacity to hear and things like that. Angels live in a higher realm. So they're spiritual beings, they're pure consciousness. That means that it would be actually easier for them to communicate, right? They could communicate probably more directly than language itself, which is kind of a frightening thought, but very cool. So yeah, but just make sure that we're not overemphasizing a passage that was making an entirely different point. Mm -hmm. um, following through on the question about uh, Irenaeus's speculation, <laughs> uh, Nina wants to know regarding Jesus dying at fifty. We didn't say that Irenaeus did, but his her question is why 
not. Why was Jesus' ministry only 33 years? We didn't say that either. Uh, but the point is that Jesus could have died for our sins at any age. Well, remember, Nina, that when the author of Hebrews begins his epistle, he emphasized that in the fullness of time the Messiah mm-hmm. was revealed to us. There's obviously significance to everything that Jesus did, but we also don't want to get so borderline conspiracy-minded that we have to look for these numerical codes and significance and so forth. If there's something there, it's either going to be explained to us or it's not going to be subtle in its reference to us. Hmm. Some you have to pay attention to, like I was uh, going through a study this week in Galatians where Paul's told at his uh, conversion, get up and stand on your feet. Well, if I get up, aren't I standing on my feet? No, there's a reason for that. That was how Ezekiel was called as a prophet to the nations outside of Israel know what Paul was also doing. That's the reason why Jesus made that quote of Ezekiel. Now, not a lot of people are going to get that. I just noticed it because someone who was studying it pointed it out to me. But it is, of course, spelled out in Scripture, and you just you can go, oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> but as far as the significance of Jesus' age and so forth, first let's just clarify the numbers. When it comes to Jesus' historical birth, Luke chapters 1 through 2 give us a lot of details as far as the information we can know about when Jesus biologically incarnated, and that is, of course, at the most, 4 BC. Now, the reason I believe that is because of the historical figures mentioned, we have three, Quirinius, who was governor of Syria, we have Herod the Great, who was a leader over the northern province of Judea, closer to Caesarea, at the time of Jesus' birth, and uh, tried to kill him, as a matter of fact, before they fled to Egypt, and of course, Caesar Augustus. That is important. All historically verifiable figures, all people that we can know, not only that existed, but when they existed and when they physically died. Now, Quirinius, not really that important. We're just told about the fact it was in his days that this tax was levied. Caesar Augustus, definitely known for gathering funds for his uh, little parties and so forth and other things, but you get the point. And then finally, Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great's death is documented and verified, not just by Roman, but also Jewish sources, to be around that point. And we know that Herod attempted to kill Jesus when he was still in his infancy, up to two years of age. Now, could Jesus have just been born, and the uh, phone lines, I guess, were really efficient in Israel, northern Israel specifically, at that time? Maybe, but given the fact he set the cap at two years, we would conclude that he had been waiting for the wise men, the representatives from the Parthian Empire, the wise men that brought Jesus the gifts, they were the ones that had not yet returned to Herod, and then he took it on himself to eliminate a threat to his throne. By the way, you read Josephus, you note he did that a lot. So we note that Jesus was around two to four years old when Herod the Great physically died. We then take that information and note, so the starting point, around 6 to 4 BC. That's a start. Now, when did Jesus physically die? Well, if we go off of Daniel's prophecy, in Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 26, we note, from the day that Artaxerxes Longiminus gave the order, and that was 539 BC, in March, if you want to know, the (laughs) month of Nisan, Nehemiah 2 uh, tells us that, verse 1, Um, All this information is levied out for us. You count according to the Jewish calendar, and you get around 32 AD. Now, the scholars that examine all these things, obviously there was some 
monkey business with our calendar compared to the Jewish calendar and what they were working with then, but the emphasis and information we have by our reckoning is either between 30 or 33 AD. Now, if we take that round number, and the reason for that, Nina, is because they are looking for when the full moon would have been in that same month, the Passover would line up the way the Gospel writers account this thing. We start around 4 to 6, that think mathematically negative four to six, all the way to about 30 to 33. That would put us around 36, 37 years. So noting that point, obviously, we can verify he wasn't older than that, not just because of the information we can know, but how people talk to him. For example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus was reprimanded and scolded for saying, you are not yet 50 years old, Sorry, Irenaeus. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus made the definitive statement before Abraham was, I am, ego me. He claims the divine name of God. So I've uh, Micah 5, 2, been around always kind of claim. The point, though, being made, Nina, is just that. What we do know about Jesus historically gives us these dates to work with. Now, the fact that we don't know if Jesus's uh, birthday cake is going to have an 8 or a 4 when we see him again in heaven, it's not going to be that important. But when we're talking about the issue of Jesus's existence, the fact that we can levy it within two years and not decades is unheard of for anything Pretty over amazing. a thousand years old. Yeah. But given the, I guess, careful homework that Dr. Luke and his contemporaries were able to put together for us, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. But as far as the significance, and this is what will tie it into your question, Nina, of why his ministry was that long, anything in Scripture as far as why? Yeah, not, not, not that I'm aware of. So we're not given any specific, like, the Messiah must be 33 years old, and then he will be crucified. There's nothing really like that or any type of spiritual significance of he was in his 30s because of X and such reason, right? We're not really given that. Uh, interestingly, Irenaeus, if you want to know his reasoning, right, his reasoning is he started with a premise, and then he read that into Scripture, and it's very clear when you read his book. Uh, so when you, re- when you read his we'll book, talk about he's, that in rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, he is, he's actually arguing with the Gnostics who believe that Jesus never existed. So, I mean, never existed in a physical form. He was only a spiritual kind of being that showed up and did his thing, and then what kind of ascended back into heaven. That's the ghost gesture I was doing. Right. <laughs> he was like in this aeon, and, and we're not going to get into that right now. But Unless you ask. Unless you ask. So Irenaeus was arguing, no, Jesus needed to be physical. And he starts arguing in that way for our salvation because he had to be a man to save men. And you're like, so far, so good. But then he makes a really weird argument and he says he had to attain to every age of life in order to save every season of life. So he had to become a baby to save babies, he had to become a child to save children, he had to become a young man to save young men, and he had to become an old man to save old men. Because then the Gnostics push back on Irenaeus and say, well, maybe he just lived for that one year that he preached and then was crucified and then taken up. And And so then you ask, okay, did Jesus have to become a woman to save women? (laughs) Did Jesus have to become... (laughs) I don't know where that goes from there. Yeah, it's a a little weird. So uh, that was his argumentation. Is it a bad argument? Yes, it's a bad argument. Is it kind of embarrassing? 
Yeah, considering that Irenaeus was a really, really bright guy. I kind of hate that he went, he kind of overshot the bow a little bit. And you got to wince a little bit when you read his reasonings. But as a whole, like I said, it is a good book. He just kind of missed, missed the mark a little bit on that subject. But the main point is that we don't have a definitive reason from Scripture as to why Jesus died when he did. So when people try to read back into Scripture some spiritual reasoning as to why Jesus died at the age that he did, they'll end up coming up with weird conclusions like Irenaeus. Just allow Scripture to speak for itself. We could speculate, we just don't know. Yeah, and again, ask his wife, ask my roommate. We say stupid stuff all yeah. the time. It doesn't <laughs> negate the right things that we said. But I guess building on that point, giving time for questions as well, uh, what, what do you think, and not just as far as the significance, but the uh, caution that we should have in falling into this trap for ourselves, mm-hmm. maybe a proto-rhetoric class here, yeah. <laughs> um, how do we avoid reading our assumptions into Scripture like for example, the idea that the Messiah had to be a conquering king hmm. and then was a suffering servant, well, emphasizing certain scriptures over others. How do we, I guess, catch ourselves where the apostles didn't? Yeah, no, abs- great question, because like you said, the apostles fell into that trap. So <laughs> even guys like the apostles could fall into that trap, then we certainly can. Uh, so the only way to do this, and this is a very difficult thing to avoid, because everybody has uh, preconceived notions about data and we read our biases into data all the time there was a really funny survey that they did a year or two ago where they interviewed people on the street like some democrats and some republicans so the first question they would ask them was are you conservative are you liberal and then after that question they would start quoting fake information they would give them fake news if you want to put it that way so to the people who said i'm conservative they would start telling them these egregious things that obama did they'd be like did you know that obama was a satan worshiper when he was eight and did you know that he killed a cat when he was 12 with his bare hands and they would start going into these egregious levels of lies and deception and people who were conservative and already didn't like obama were way more likely to believe it they'd be like wow i didn't know that i'll have to look into that's really crazy man i never heard of that before some of them actually said oh i did hear something like that before (laughs) and they would they were going to go into that but then the liberals they're like they would say the same kind of things but about donald trump they're like oh yeah like that's totally true i heard that from a friend it's like no you didn't they they just made it up on the spot but you did hear it and people were just making up stuff in two situations (laughs) but (laughs) uh but the point is that yeah we all have that tendency to read our biases into things so the only way to get around that And this is just a good habit to get into, regardless if you're dealing with scripture or just information in general, is you have to learn how to empty yourself of prejudice. What that means is when you come to a text, no matter what it is, you have to come to it saying, I want to know what this person thought or what this person thinks. I don't want to know what I already think because I already know that, right? I want to know what they think. Assume that they know something you don't. So if you're listening to someone that you hate and they're giving you information, try to open your mind a little bit. Just say like, okay, what are they trying to communicate? What are they trying to say to me right now? And I want to judge that not what I think they're saying to me. So whether we're listening to politicians, whether we're listening to old friends, enemies, whatever, we have to learn how to say, I want to hear what this person is saying, not what I think they're saying. I wanna give them the right and the respect to try to understand what they're trying to communicate. Uh, Which again, especially when it comes to ancient texts, it means you gotta do a lot of reading, right? You, You can't just do a cursory glance of a singular text or a singular verse. You gotta go through the entire book you got to say, okay, well, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but does he mean that in the same way that I mean that? 
Well, I got to read the whole book. I got to go back and say, is there other times that Paul mentioned scripture? Does he really mean it in the way that I do? You got to give people enough respect in order to do that. Yeah. So more information, obviously better than less, more information rather than us. That's how we uh, keep out of those pitfalls. Uh, Follow-up question from Tim. He's the one who asked last week about fasting, Hmm. kind of, you know, dealing with brain fog and I guess, uh, disillusionment and so forth. Nobody knows anything about what that's like. But the concern is I don't know what I should be doing with my life right now. What would be a a good, I guess, biblical starting point for him? Uh, Yeah, so when I'm counseling people who ask me this question, uh, I try to break down goals into three different categories. I talk about there are character goals, there are spiritual goals, and then there are life goals, right? Um, And usually the life goals include relational goals, and all of them are very important. So spiritual goals are the ones that the Bible tells us about. These are the things that we can and ought to be shooting for. So do you have goals? Like if you're wondering, I don't know what I'm doing with my life right now. Okay, let's think about your spiritual goals. Do you have any aspirations for getting closer to God? Do you have any aspirations to knowing God more? What are you doing to accomplish those goals, right? So you're saying things like, well, I'm going to commit myself to trying to get into the Bible at least once a day. I want to commit myself to spending time praying with God uh, at least once or twice a day. I want to commit myself to being a part of a good godly congregation. I want to be a part of a church community that's going to build me up and my ability to know God. Uh, Are there known areas of sin inside of your life that you're fighting at this moment? Do you have accountability? Do you have areas where people are helping you out and communicating with you about better ways to fight these particular sins? Right, those are just some examples of spiritual goals that would be good for you to have. And every single one that I just gave you, I could give you biblical references to suggest that this is what God would be wanting us to do. And by the way, when the Bible is talking about these types of goals and purposes for life, it actually does communicate that these are the main ones that matter, right? These are the will of God for our life. So a good example, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So what is the will of God for your life? That you know him more and more, and that you learn how to possess your vessel, which is another word for body, in a way that honors God, right? So that your behavior reflects the commands and the will and the ethics of God, which leads into the next thing. So once you're thinking about that, how am I accomplishing these goals? And uh, it feeds into these other things. Well, what are the main commandments of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so do you have any relational goals, right? How are your relationships doing? Start with your family. Do you have good relationships with your family in general or bad relationships with your family? Are you working on those, right? So do you have a lot of issues with your parents? Do you have a lot of issues with your brothers and your sisters? Do you have a lot of issues with your aunts and your uncles, right? What kind of family do you have in your world? Do you have kids? Do you have good relationships with them? If they're bad, ask yourself the question of what am I doing to remedy them? As long as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. That's what the Apostle Paul writes to us. Doesn't mean it's always up to us. Sometimes people are engaging in egregious behavior that we can't reconcile with. But what kind of relationships do you have right now? Are you working on them? Are you pursuing them in a way that could honor God and honor his word and ethics that he gives to us? Um, After relational goals, you may want to think, am I aspiring to any type of relationship? So this might be romantic. 
You might say, well, I'm a single person. Um, I'm aspiring to be married one day, right? I, I would really like to be married one day. Uh, if, if that's the case, then you should be asking yourself the question of what kind of a partner am I looking for? What are the qualities that uh, would be good for me, amenable to me? What, what faith would it look like? What type of personality would be good for me? Am I willing to work on various things? And then that, that leads into the main question, which is character goals. What kind of character goals do you have for yourself? Are you becoming the kind of person that can make relationships work, or are you becoming the kind of person that is ruining relationships, right? Someone who is who's bombing their relationships because you struggle with dishonesty, or you struggle with temperance, right? You can't really hold your temper together. You're all over the place. You're really impulsive. Uh, are you the kind of person who struggles a lot with anger issues? Do you struggle a lot with anxiety, and do you project your anxiety onto other people? Do you struggle with assertiveness? Is it difficult for you to tell people what your needs are in a really clear and concise way, or do you subtly hint at them in order to make people feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, so these are just various examples, right? What kind of a character do you have, and is it conducive to positive relationships? Are you working on these things, right? Are you working on these things? And that could even lead into various career-oriented goals. What kind of job do you have right now? Do you enjoy your job? Why or why not? right? Do you have any financial goals, right? Do you have any goals for or aspirations towards promotion within your particular job or your career field? Do you have trades that you want to learn how to do? Are there various hobbies that you want to pick up or uh, learn how to do in greater propensity, right? These are questions that you should be asking yourself if you feel lost and if you feel like you're inside of some sort of a tunnel and you don't know how to get out of it. Also ask yourself this question, what are the negative things inside of my life that I recognize as problems and am I working on on those. Again, do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with loneliness? Do you struggle with fears? Do you struggle with worries? Do you struggle with um, indecisiveness, right? Whatever things that you have as issues, once again, are you working through those things? Are you finding a lot of resources in your life to help you work through those things? And this is why I always encourage people, write. Try to find time to write these things down because it helps organize and articulate your thoughts in a way that other people can understand. If these things are just happening within your own head, it's very difficult to keep and to hold fast to goals because sometimes you forget what your goals were, right? <laughs> Put them down on paper, understand what they are. And again, write underneath them, what am I doing to accomplish these goals? And understand once again, that all these goals and aspirations, they're gonna come with a lot of failure, they're gonna come with a lot of difficulties and frustrations, but are you learning perseverance to overcome those frustrations and to do better as you move forward, right? The more you articulate yourself on paper, the more you talk to people about what your goals are, and ask them to hold you accountable, the better you're going to do moving forward. So that should give you a hopefully a good foundation for what do you do when you feel a little bit uh, aimless in your pursuits. Get an idea of all these things. Organize yourself in the right way. And hopefully when you move forward, you'll understand it better. All right. Um, now for our contradiction of the day. Uh, this is a fun one. Uh, in the atheist website that we took these from, apparently the Bible contradicts itself in the observation that Jesus was born in a manger or in a house. Obviously, uh, we couldn't reconcile these, so let's make sure that we hear them at face value. According to Luke chapter 1, or chapter 2 rather, verses 1 through 7, specifically verse 7, he was born in a manger. That's uh, not accurate, but let's continue on. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, it says that he was born in a house. 
Okay, so taking this one step at a time, obviously we want to hammer this home because it's the thing you will hear the most in your relationship with God, and we want to make sure that you're prepared for it. When someone says the Bible contradicts itself, why is that an important thing to either be true or not be true? As we talked about, having a authority of all truth that conflicts with itself at a fundamental level is not a good authority. So if the Bible, if it's true, the Bible contradicts itself, not that you can misrepresent two passages, not that there's a translation error, not because there are passages that are difficult to reconcile or that include more information on certain areas than others. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if the claim is made for a contradiction, first know what a contradiction is. You don't have to tell them that you know, but make sure that you know as these things are being pointed out and maybe walk the person through this if they're sincere. First, ask where and when. That's always key. They provided it for us, Luke 2, 1 through 7, and Matthew 2 and verse 11. Uh, I'll pick Luke 2, and noting this is in verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. So at the end of this section, they include the whole thing, which is fair for context, but we just note all the characters involved. We've got a pregnant woman who gives birth to a baby, and they lay him in a manger. Now note, they uh, didn't fail to take into consideration that there was a super glue that would keep him fastened to said manger for the better part of 30 years, or 38 if you prefer. Uh, We also aren't given information about the fact that Mary gave birth in a manger. He was laid in a manger as an accommodating crib, but that's neither here nor there. The confusion, I guess, is in the misrepresentation of the second passage, that, of course, no manger is mentioned. Although, interestingly enough, is Jesus' birth even mentioned? Uh, No. So um, this is Matthew chapter 2. Again, you got to read the whole context, but essentially what's happened is the wise men uh, from the east, the Parthenon, the Parthian Empire that you mentioned earlier, they're coming to inaugurate the birth of who they see to be a very important person, some sort of a king of the Jews. So when they're going, it's very clear that he's already been born. How long has he been born? We don't really know. As Sean said, it's insinuated that he's probably been alive for maybe a year or so based on Herod's reaction when they don't come back, right? And the language they used to describe him, not as a babe, but a young child. That's right. So the passage itself just says, uh, this is Matthew chapter 2, and uh, let's start in verse 10. When they saw the star, so remember they're following the star, and it sets on this house. When they star- saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented uh, gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this is when Mary and Joseph are obviously in a house, right? So this is after the birth story. Birth story happened very suddenly. They were trying to get into the inn. They couldn't. And so they had to give birth outside, kind of in the stable area with the animals, which is where mangers would be. They gave birth, but they didn't set up shop there. They weren't like, you know, this is a really good place to start a family. You know, (laughs) let's just stay in this farm and, uh, you know, hang out with these livestock and keep Jesus in this really, really sanitary environment in this manger. No, they, they gave birth because 
any of you ladies who have been in labor, you know, you don't, you can't really get very picky at a certain point in your labor. You can't really be like, well, you know, it's just not going to happen here. I'm going to wait till I get to a house. No. Well, when the baby's coming, it's coming, right? So they had to give birth there. But then after they give birth, they would obviously want to get out of that area and to go somewhere more conducive to raising a child. So, yeah. So note the whole problem with this. This would be an example of misrepresenting two passages, but it's really just a matter. And Peter, you gave us the courtesy of just reading one more verse, but even then that's not necessary yeah. because it uses different languages. It doesn't mention the birth in the Matthew passage. The only person who would take this as an acceptable contradiction is the person who already accepted it was a contradiction before reading the passages. Right. And just like the bias issue before, we don't want to encourage that kind of mindset, even among atheists. So make sure when you're talking to someone about does this passage contradict with another, that you first clarify those two things, what a contradiction is and where and when this contradiction took place. We can uh, bear full and experienced testimony, even gone through this list many times, their objections haven't gotten better. It is either one of three things. It is a translation issue, it is a misunderstanding or misrepresentation of one passage compared to another, or it's just a fundamental lie. It's not a contradiction at all. It's an addition of detail. So make sure that when you're combated or confronted rather with these things, you combat them the way Scripture tells us to, not according to the flesh. We don't, uh, you know, declare jihad and behead them like Surah 9 tells us, uh, 111 tells us to. Uh, it would, of course, be to tear down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the Word of God. Uh, so with that then being said, we've got a few minutes for some more questions, hopefully uh, nothing too fancy. I'll keep my eyes open. But continuing on with an interesting uh, question as well, um, briefly from Yari, who wants to know if I don't remember his uh, new birthday, uh, the day I gave my life to Jesus, does that matter? And if not, what does matter concerning my ongoing relationship with Jesus? Obviously, uh, he may be picky or not about anniversaries. Mm -hmm. What's important about making sure that you stay married in this case? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, me personally, I don't remember the date that I gave my life to Jesus either. I remember remember the basic time frame. I remember how old I was. I remember kind of around the time that I that I gave my life to God, but some people have less than that to go on. Uh, the important thing is not the date. There is nothing in Scripture that tells us that we have to know the date in which we gave our life to the Lord. We just have to be asserted that we have given our life to the Lord. So it's very different if someone says, well, I don't remember the exact date, and someone who says, I don't remember if I did it, right? <laughs> if you didn't, if you don't even remember if you ever did it, then you need to question yourself and say, do you believe it right now, right? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord right now? Do you have a confirmation that he is who he says he is, He that what he said is true about your state before God, that you are in sin, that you were dead in your sin and trespasses, and you are in desperate need of salvation through his death and resurrection? Do you believe that he actually did that in a moment in history, right? If you believe all those things, maybe you just have a terrible memory and like, I don't remember when I came to know that these things were true. Maybe, possibly, that is a little weird to me. But hey, it, it is possible, and that does sometimes happen. But the important thing is, once again, it's not when you believed or if you remember when you first believed, but you do believe. That is the important thing, that you have faith in these things and you are confirmed in them. 
And what do we believe? Well, three fundamental truths. First of all, that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed he was. That was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and da- uh, Jacob. In his claim to be the Jewish Messiah, he wasn't just a man, nor was he the full essence of God. He was the God-man. And when we say that, we mean he was fully God and also fully man. And as a man, he laid his life down on a cruel Roman cross, endured a full Roman crucifixion, which no one in history has ever survived. And then after his public death and burial, he rose again the third day, all according to the scriptures. This is the gospel by which we were saved. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1 tells us, and if you continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that is what you're affirming. That is what you have faith in. That is what you trust. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.